Hi there, folks. Once again, your fearless host. I am Ted King. As always, I'm delighted to bring you another episode of King of the Ride podcast. Now, this here is going to be episode number two. It's it's slightly time sensitive, although you can listen to it whenever you would like. Um, I say time sensitive because I am recording this in Emporia, Kansas. We are less than 36 hours away from kicking off Dirty Kansas. Um, I'm really excited to sit down with our guest today, Dan Hughes. He is what I consider the king of Kansas. We'll get into those details in a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, with Kansas on the horizon, I'm really hoping to get this out there ASAP, and hopefully you really enjoy our conversation. So, let's see, what else is new? I mean, prep for this race has been going, has been ongoing for the past year for me, um, if you've read recent blogs or or social posts, I have this hashtag six days to Kanza. And I talk about my training, which really isn't training at all. It's riding. I ride a lot. I ride hard a lot. I, I enjoy riding, but I'm not doing intervals. And you can really get a, a feel about what I've done to prep for this race. Another thing that I've done to prep for this race is my wife, Laura, and I are moving across the country and not just like across the city or state, but literally across the country from California to Vermont. So. As if the stress of that wasn't enough, she and I have been lifting heavy boxes for the better part of the past two weeks, which as of this morning, I mean, cyclists are not known for their massive upper bodies. I'm wrecked. My legs feel great. I've been lifting with my arms, my back, and not with my legs because apparently that's what you're supposed to do. That is not true. Um, anyway, we got, we got 36 hours to rest and recover. I'm stoked for the race. Uh, maybe I'll be hanging out in my TT bars. Maybe not. That's become a hot topic that I'm kind of entertained by. Also on the social media. Anyway, we'll, we'll see what happens on Saturday morning at 6 a.m. We flew into Kansas last night. Uh, I spent a good portion of the flight reading this great book called Endure by Alex Hutchinson. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe not. Uh, what can I say about it? Um, I'm, not, I'm not the fastest to pick up the latest and greatest book, but if you are an endurance athlete, if you're an athlete of any kind, I think you'll really enjoy this piece, enjoy this book. Um, it's, it's basically just a curious read about all kinds of human performance measurements. Uh, given the title, Endure, it definitely leans towards endurance sports. Uh, and, and there's just great overlays of testimonies, real-world examples overlapped with the pure science side of things. So you know, a lot of ways it reads like a Malcolm Gladwell book, um, who fittingly wrote the forward. So yeah, I mean, I think you'll dig it. Give that a read. I have no endorsement. I just think you're going to enjoy that book. Um, we, we flew into Kansas city. We drove to Lawrence, which we're going to talk about in the podcast here shortly. Uh, that was yesterday. And then this morning we drove to Emporia where the race takes place. It is baking hot. Uh, we just got back from a midday Velocio shakeout ride, really well attended, a lot of fun. I wore a uh, white signature jersey, which was brilliant because it's baking hot and I was wearing white. Got to stay cool. So what am I doing here? I'm drinking like a fish. Uh, I got a couple cool events with SRAM and with Cannondale the next two days. I'm going to be playing cornhole. I mean, that's hard to beat. And then we get ready to, to race bikes. So anyway, please excuse my occasional sips of water here and the roar of the air conditioning machine. Thank you, modern appliances. Uh, lastly, I mean, I talk about, I'm going to talk about community a lot. I love, I think there's no better word that describes cycling for me now 
than community. And that's what I love about the sport. It's the bringing together of people. You know, we're of a similar mind, of a similar direction in the sport, by and large. Especially with gravel, you see more and more of that hearkening to community. We talk about community uh, found in a bike shop in the conversation with Dan. In this race, Dirty Kanza really brings out a different community. This isn't a hotbed of cycling 10 years ago. It certainly has become one. And and the community here in Emporia and the greater literally state of Kanza is is mesmerizing. It's amazing how much they, they're drawn to this race, how much they, they gravitate and... Uh, no better word than gravitate to the, to the race. For example, I'm walking to do the podcast this morning, admittedly in Lawrence, it's about an hour away. And typically if you see somebody on the sidewalk, you might wave. Or if you're walking the same direction, say hi, make a, you know, a nodding motion. This gentleman came up to me and just started talking my ear off. But totally in a great way. Hey man, how are you doing? What are you, where are you coming from? Oh, you're here for the bike race. That's so great. Talked about Lawrence, talked about the cycling community. We, we t- walked and talked for three blocks. That doesn't happen in most of America. You acknowledge each other at most. You say hi at most. Um, and then after the ride today here in Emporia, I'm at the local sandwich shop. Okay, admittedly, I'm wearing tight clothing, spandex. And these two elderly women literally tap me on the shoulder and they're like, total curiosity. Hey, where are you from? And, and we went into another 15-minute conversation about my experience with this race, the development of this race, what, what the community, hint, 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 means to this race. One of the women was, uh, uh, has been a volunteer in the past. Um, the other just knows all about the participants. She knew that this year there was a racer coming in from Italy. It was incredible. It was, it's just something that really sets this race apart from virtually any other that I've done. Dirty Kansas is awesome. I'm ecstatic to be back. I'm excited for this conversation. I'm excited for the race on Saturday. And without further ado, I hope you enjoy this podcast and my conversation with Dan Hughes, King of Kansas. Ladies and gentlemen, Ted King sitting down in Lawrence, Kansas with none other than Dan Hughes. Dan Hughes, welcome to King of the Ride podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. This is an honor. Oh, man. This is an honor to be here. Um, okay. Introduction about Dan the Man Hughes. Four-time Dirty Kansas winner. Two-time second place. Ten-time finisher, which places him second most finishes all time. Correct. Correct. Uh, Corey Godfrey from uh, Nebraska has eleven finishes out of uh, twelve events, so he's he's the the marathon man for sure of that event. But um, crazy, yeah. Um, we can get into what he might be doing this year, what mm-hmm. you're going to be doing this year. Sure. Um, uh, gravel world champion Dan Hughes, <laughs> um, Trans Iowa champion Dan Hughes, and the only person who has ever done all three in one year. Uh, I'll walk that back a little bit. Only okay. person ever to have won all three, not in the same year. Okay. So because the uh, gravel triple crown, quote unquote, uh-huh. is a completely artificial construct anyway, uh-huh. the normal um, the normal rules of winning them all in the same year don't apply. So hmm. um, yeah, unfortunately, I was not able to do those all in the same year, but um, I'm happy to have had those results uh, nonetheless. Well, how about... 
Okay. Uh, I'm looking at the progress of what Gravel has done over time. Uh, we are now in our 13th year. We are on uh, the eve eve of Dirty Cans as we speak right now. Dirty Cans of 2018. And over time, this is 13 years of Dirty Kanza. Um, what I what I am sort of alluding to is we've seen it go from this very grassroots event. Uh, how many folks did the first one? Uh, in 2006, there were 34 okay. uh, people that towed the line for the very first Dirty Kanza. And we're seeing progress to now 22,000, 2,200 plus right. in year 2018. So, I mean, I wonder at what point do we see uh, that we have... It becomes a triple crown. It becomes a thing to get it all three, uh, all three in one year. Like it's almost the monuments, as opposed to you know an era, a bygone era of hip bike racing, road racing, crit racing. Uh, the big money crit races now. I think it's awesome that that there's so much uh, prestige put around gravel racing and racing for cowboy hats and and belt buckles and you know less monetary gain. Yeah, I think the uh, evolution of gravel racing has been. Uh, certainly an interesting arc given that um in many ways the early days of mountain bike racing had a very tribal feel to it where uh the tribe would come together and they would test themselves and they would test uh, each other against the course and the conditions and then probably all uh share a beer afterwards and it wasn't um a lot of um a lot of uh strange tactics and and um aggressive personalities everybody was just out there having fun and i think that still uh exists today in the gravel scene um i think as the industry uh the bike industry turns to gravel events and understands that they are uh, a legitimate way for people to get out and explore um that certainly brings people of your caliber and um fast fast folks to these events and um it's it's encouraging to see uh, a lot of different people be welcomed into the tribe uh, mm-hmm. on these gravel events for sure. And we can take that in about a hundred different directions. One of which that I want to talk about is we're currently sitting in your office in Sunflower Outdoor and Bike Shop. Mm-hmm. So you certainly know retail. You're talking about the industry and how the industry has taken gravel under its wing. It's um, I had this conversation yesterday. Do you think it's the consumer that's pushing the desire for gravel, or do you think it's the industry saying, hey, here's a whole new lineup of products? Because, you know, if you look back 15 years ago, there weren't gravel bikes. There were sort of Franken bikes that people cobbled together, and now there is an entire industry built around it. I'm wondering which is the chicken and the egg in this scenario. And, you know, bigger picture, we're in Lawrence, Kansas, which is a super cool college town, fun town, bike town, outdoorsy town. Like, what are you seeing in the industry? right now i think there are a lot of different reasons for um the burgeoning interest in gravel and and part of that is that um and i can only speak to this from my myopic perspective of being in lawrence kansas and um riding bikes in this area but i I firmly believe that riders often are uh, the product of their environment so in the midwest we have um not a bunch of big mountains not um you know, any epic climbs, but we have wind and we have a lot of gravel. And so mm-hmm. that's what we ride around here. If we lived in California and, and had massive mountains to climb or someplace like that, we would have a bunch of climbers around here. But what we have is gravel. And uh, I think the interesting thing about gravel is that as what I see every day in the shop is that people come in 
and they want to have a, an endurance length uh, experience. They want to go out and they want to ride for multiple hours at a time. Uh, and that previously was probably the the place where road biking kind of fit in. People would go out for road rides. It was a social activity on a Sunday morning, whatever. But as um, our connectedness with social media combined with uh, distracted drivers, what yeah. I hear is people coming in and, and as riders like you and I, I, I don't have any fears necessarily about going out and riding on the road. I know what roads to ride on, when to ride on them. I know how to stay safe in those environments, but somebody's uh, significant other comes along and they hear about somebody being hit by a distracted driver in, you know, Texas and it blows up on their social media f- uh, feed. And then all of a sudden there's pressure to say, Hey man, road riding is dangerous. Sure. And I don't know that it's, it, it probably is more dangerous than it was 15 years ago because there are more distracted drivers. But, um, I think that pressure leads uh, riders to say, we need to do something um, safer, but still have that endurance length feel. So gravel comes into that uh, because you can go and do a three or four hour gravel ride and see maybe two or three friendly farmer trucks that wave yep. at you when you go by. And, and there are definitely hazards out there. I mean, you know that that house has a dog that will come out and chase you, but they're, they're no, there's hazards. your sprint workout. Yeah, exactly. So, um, I think that's why more and more people are turning to gravel. Uh-huh. Um, I think events like the dirty Kansas, uh, you know, before I was a rider, um, I was a runner. So growing up in, in, um, middle school and high school, I was a runner and in 1984 at the age of 15, I got up off the couch and said, I'm going to run a marathon this year. <laughs> and I did it. And <laughs> afterwards said, I'm never doing that again. Yep. That was stupid. Uh-huh. Um, and so that's what turned me to, to bicycles. Um, and so I've been riding for a while, but I think for years, runners have gotten up on January one and their new year's resolution has been, uh, this is the year I run a marathon. I'm going to get a coach. I'm going to get new shoes. I'm going to figure out my nutrition. I'm going to join a club. I'm going to train up and I'm going to do a marathon. And then on January 3rd, <laughs> January 3rd, they're back to, uh, <laughs> flaming hot Cheetos yes. and, uh, binge watching Netflix. Um, but for cycling, I don't think there's been that totem. I think, you know, I think I read a bicycling magazine article 20 years ago that compared riding a century to running a marathon, riding a century on the road is way easier than running a marathon. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, a fast century is, you know, five hours or, or thereabouts or a little less mm-hmm. doesn't compare to running a marathon, sure. but waking up as I did on the very first dirty Kansas, I woke up, um, at, at some point and thought, I don't know if I can do it. <laughs> I don't know if I can ride 200 miles. <laughs> and so going out and, and getting involved in an event that kind of puts the fear of God in you a little bit yeah. is, uh, motivating. And I think that's part of what, uh, attracts people to, gravel and uh events like the kanza where um it's it's a challenge yeah so that's an amazing comparison um i dabbled in running this fall i i accidentally ran 16 miles uh felt like death soon thereafter so yeah i totally see that comparison uh i i explained i'm entering my third dk this year somewhere between the hours of eight and north of that and so you know 120 plus miles in you're gonna start questioning your existence and why you're doing it and if you can make it and if you can finish and, and why you're doing it. Um, so 
does that enter your desire? <laughs> this is the first year of DKXL, which is 300 and... 50, 350. 350 year. miles. Um, invitation only. The, the organizers, the Dirty Cans of Productions, uh, invited 34 individuals um, to honor the number 34 who did the original Dirty Cans. I imagine you're going to see a even higher number of, of those questioning moments. Yeah. Or, I mean, you've done Trans-Iowa. Like, how, how do you prepare for an event like DKXL or a Trans-Iowa? Um, um, so... You're looking lean, by the way. <laughs> uh, well, I weighed myself this morning, and I've never been fatter, so thank you. I'm, I'm hiding it, <laughs> You're uh, hiding hiding it well. well. Um, <laughs> and I'm trying to convince myself that uh, my copious amounts of back fat are exactly what I need to ride 350 yeah. miles. You have to have it a lot of fuel. Camels on board. And, yeah. and stuff. Um, the DKXL, I think, is an interesting uh, construct because uh, the nature of the 200-mile distance has really changed over the past uh, 12 years. Amen. It's changed over the past two. Yeah. Um, so in the very early years of Dirty Kanza, uh, smaller fields, slower speeds, and then also uh, a lack or a, not a lack of support, but a rules kind of construct that you could only meet your crew at the midway checkpoint <laughs> uh, in the old days. So that was back in the days when they would do a drop bag service and yep. you, you, you would get your resupply at Cottonwood Falls. So you're, um, you're self-supported for 100 miles, effectively. Yeah. Um, and you could stop. There's obviously a first and third checkpoint, and it was near a Casey's convenience store. Casey's, by Which the way, for, for yep. those who don't know, is uh, the ubiquitous convenience store of the Plains that makes uh, great pizza. And uh, it's think of it as the 7-Eleven of the Midwest, uh -huh. basically. Known so, for its rotating pizza as opposed to spinning hot dogs. Exactly. Yeah. They uh, they spin the pizza. They don't roll the dogs. But, right. Um, Anyway, back in those days, uh, it was very much a um, a self-supported sort of thing and, and an adventure sort of uh, idea. And so as the 200 distance has gotten where now you can meet your crew every 50 to 60 miles um, and the speeds have increased. Um, it's straight up road racing, it, effectively. It is. It's Kermess racing. And, and, and if obviously the success of the event has, has led... Uh, to those, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's, mm -hmm. it's just the way the event has evolved. So the 350 distance, uh, certainly harkens back to, uh, the old days of, for me, at least for sure. I, I don't know if I can ride 350 mm -hmm. miles. It's going to be a challenge. And totally, this one's completely self-supported. Yeah. No outside support whatsoever. Uh, you have to, um, you know, whatever you can beg, borrow or steal at a Casey's. Yeah. Uh, that's what I was going to say. How many calories do you think you'll have on your person at the beginning? And how far do you expect to go per, per Casey's stop? Um, that's a great question because, um, as Yuri Hoswald of Goo Energy would tell you, he and I ride together um, whenever we can. Uh, his and my fueling strategy is completely different. I don't eat nearly enough <laughs> um, when I ride. So at the end of a Dirty Kansas 200, I will... Um, uh, empty my pockets and find all the things I should have eaten. Um, uh, I think at, uh, let's see, I just came back from Almanzo, uh, a 100 mile race in Minnesota. Nice. And, uh, that was, I think two gels and a bottle of Roctane, uh, for a hundred miles. So clearly I don't, I'm not the person to ask about okay. fueling. I don't eat nearly enough. I'm furrowing, furrowing my brow, <laughs> which, okay. A hundred miles 
you can go on on momentum and tailwinds and a couple calories in your pockets. 200 miles, you begin to fake it. You can't fake 350 miles purely on stored energy. No. Um, so the question is, how much am I carrying on me versus how much am I going to stop and get and how often am I going to stop? Yeah, how many um, calories per Casey's pizza? That sort of thing. <laughs> Uh, I think there's probably 750 calories in each one of those. These so. are like personal pan pizza size? Yeah, pretty okay. much. Oh, yeah. delicious. Um, Shout out to third grade pizza. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm just going to, uh, you know, the the nature of uh, the event is that the first opportunity to resupply this year is at about mile 50. Then it's 60 more miles basically to Eureka. Uh, and then the overnight stretch is a hundred miles from Eureka to Cottonwood Falls. There's nothing out there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's every 50 to a hundred miles basically is, is an opportunity to stop and refill on fluids and, um, and calories. So I'll definitely take, I'll start with a couple bottles of, uh, Roctane and I'll have a bunch of gels and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. I find that, you know, as the event drags on, space food or, or race mm-hmm. nutrition as you know, we normally think of it. Um, there comes a point where it just doesn't taste very good anymore. And well, you, you clearly haven't had enough untapped, but go on. True. Good point. Good point. Tastes delicious. <laughs> All the time. Thank you. Late. <laughs> Subtle plug. <laughs> uh, you want something savory after a little while. Yeah, so that, you know. that's, um, yeah, I was reaching for pizza at mile 150 two yep. years ago. Pickles. Yep. Yep. Um, and, and, for those of us who have not ridden or raced around here, this isn't uh, typical middle America where you see a convenience store and a Walgreens every 10 miles. Like, you are out there, and you don't see anything. You see farmers. You see the very, very occasional farmer and truck. You see a handful of cows, and you see vast plains and rolling hills. Yeah. Um, to anyone who thinks that Kansas, especially the Flint Hills, are flat, they've not ridden in this area. It's... Uh, it's not, beastly. yeah, it's not, uh, any massive climbs. It's the same, uh, 300 foot climb a thousand times over that, sure. that crushes you. So I think the elevation for DKXL is, uh, a little north of 15,000 wow. uh, feet of climbing. Yep. Um, and again, no, no great big climbs, but just you're up and down all day. Yep. And, and honestly, I think part of what, um, kind of going back to our previous conversation about gravel and, and, um, its place in the industry and why people flock to it is that, um, you know, I think if you, if you looked around at top cycling destinations, top outdoor recreation, uh, destinations in the United States, Kansas would not rank very high. Most of the Midwestern states wouldn't, uh, but people come to this event. Uh, certainly your presence here brings notoriety to it. Rebecca Rush's presence, you know, as more and more people come to Kansas, um, I think they come in with maybe a little lowered expectation of what they're going to, they're going to get. I know Rebecca, Rebecca Rush, the first year she came was like, why do I want to go to Kansas? Sure. You know? Um, and then they get here and they are just literally, literally and figuratively blown away, uh, by the beauty of the Flint Hills and the remoteness of it. And exactly what you alluded to, which is that, um, you get out there and there is nothing mm-hmm. for 15 miles, 20 miles, 30 miles or more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that I think, um, really people come in with low expectations and then are just, um, gobsmacked at the end of the day at, at how awesome it is. And that's what converts a lot of people to that, that gravel sort of vibe. Yep. Agreed. Um, speaking of the vibe, speaking of industry, I think no better word 
encompasses what cycling means to me and what, you know, the direction that I, I embrace it now than the word community and cycling is community and a really great bike shop is community and a great ride is, ride is community. The coffee shop ride stop, whatever it is, the dirty Kansas community. Sunflower to me, having been introduced to this establishment two years ago by Rebecca Rush and you, you guys took me under your wing. This shop is community. You are, you are something of an icon here, not to you know make you blush too much. Hmm. How, how have you built that? You know, you didn't buy this place last year. We're in a historic building with a really cool storied history. How have you gone about, and was it a concerted effort? Because I think that's, that's what really shows the successful bike shops these days um, are the ones that build a community and, and a place that customers do want to come in, hang out, talk to the mechanic, talk to the owner, talk to the manager, and yeah, spend some bucks, buy your bike there. Right. So, so, you know, how, how have you developed that? I think um, that aspect of, of our business is... I've felt for a long, long time that bike shops exist um, kind of on a continuum. At one end of the spectrum are um, salesmen who could sell you a toaster or could sell you a, a widget or whatever. But for them, it's just it's a product and, and they're selling it. And that's one end of the spectrum for, for bike retail. At the other end of the spectrum is the uh, diehard enthusiast rider who loves riding bikes and loves bikes and loves people, but is terrible at business. Um, doesn't know what a, a profit and loss statement is. Doesn't know any of those, those metrics. The people that are just salesmen don't resonate with the community. The, the community comes in and they're like, yeah, I know you're just trying to sell me something and, and they're not into it. At the other end of the spectrum, the, the guys that they love and gals that are, are ardent enthusiasts uh, don't have the business acumen to make sure they pay the bills. So somewhere in the middle are shops that survive. And I feel like Sunflower has always existed just on the um, on the other side of the line from we're, we're riders struggling with the business side of it. Um, we're on the riding side of that coin. We're, we're just good enough to figure out how to pay the bills. So I think what Sunflower has, um, and really, you know, the store has been here for 46 years. Um, it's been a part of the Lawrence community for, for that long. And the people that work here, I mean, Colin, who has been here forever, uh, Duncan, um, those, because we ride bikes and because we're out there, um, fighting the same headwinds and sprinting from the same farm dogs. Um, I think that's what ingratiates us to our customers and allows us to exist. I, I, I believe that the bike shop wouldn't exist without the community, but I also kind of think that the community wouldn't exist without the bike shop. So that's, um, that's where we find ourselves and it hasn't been a concerted effort. It's just been organic. And, um, anytime somebody comes in and says, man, you've got a great, a great space and this is a great shop and, and, uh, you're an icon. I have to walk that back and say, I'm, I'm the, the tip of the spear that gets the compliment, but really it's the people that we have here and the people that have been here for 46 years yep. that have built that. So I will, I will accept that on behalf of them. Uh, but it's their connection. And, and honestly, sometimes, uh, <laughs> I had, uh, Colin just the other day on mother's day, he was uh, sharing a, a, a quiet moment with his wife 
uh, at a local park and they were walking around on Mother's Day and and he had somebody chase him down to thank him for <laughs> the handlebar that they put on his bike or whatever. And he was sure. like, he's like, man, I'm trying to enjoy this time with my wife here. Yeah. But I'm glad you love your handlebar. <laughs> so um, it's it's great to be uh, part of that community. Um, just spend some extra, you just plan for some extra time at the grocery store because you're going to yeah. run into some people that want to talk bikes. Sure. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I've, I've lived bikes for 15 years as a career and a profession. And it's funny because on the first, you know, Wednesday afternoon or Saturday morning when I didn't have to ride a bike, I wanted to ride a bike and I enjoy talking about bikes. And so, yeah, here, yeah, it's not, maybe you really do want to get home. Maybe you want to see your kids. Maybe you want to you know hang out with your significant other. And maybe you just want to buy some lettuce, but at the end of the day, it's still something that we're passionate about. Yeah. Um, and this, what you don't see on the other end of the, the speaker here, your office is fascinating. There are two, um, what do you call those? Tax, taxidermy mounts. Taxidermy mounts. One yeah. is a giant white buffalo. Um, I know there's a fascinating story to what goes on in the closet. Uh that sounds weird. Um, you have a, you have a, what's the story with the car downstairs? There's a Volkswagen bug in yeah. your, in your main showroom. Yeah. So, uh, the sunflower, just to kind of flesh out the, um, history of, of the space, um, Lawrence was founded by, um, the new England emigrant aid society back in the pre civil war days. Basically Kansas was coming into the union and it could come in either as a free state or a slave state. And the folks from Missouri, Missouri was a slave state, so they wanted it to come in as that. Doing some uh, do-gooder um, uh, folks from New England. Bunch of hippies from Massachusetts. Exactly. Uh, said, no, we want it to come in as a free state. And so yeah. Amos Lawrence was the uh, owner of the New England Immigrant Aid Society, the president, yeah. whatever. And so he sent a bunch of people to uh, Kansas, and they founded the town. So... Our address uh, at 804 Massachusetts Street. Mass Street is the main drag because that's mm -hmm. where it was from. So anyway. Uh, yeah, you it, see it on all the cross streets. It's Massachusetts named towns. It's it's obviously the main street in town is Massachusetts. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to MA. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's funny when I ride around and, and I'm in my sunflower uh, kit, uh, people are like, oh, you're from Massachusetts. I'm like, no, <laughs> it's, it's the street name. Uh, oh, that's great. Lawrence, but anyway, uh, the building, the Ridenauer Baker building that we're in, um, was burned to the ground in 1863. A guy named William Contrell came over from Missouri and burned the whole town to the ground. Wow. Killed uh, everybody he could find, basically. And this building was one of the first buildings rebuilt after that. So the Ridenauer Baker building uh, was built in 1865, and it's been a seed warehouse and a bowling alley supply store. And uh, for the last... Obviously, 46 years, it's been Sunflower Outdoor and Bike Shop, which started as Sunflower Surplus, an Army-Navy surplus store back in the day. Anyway, in 1997, uh, kind of uh, hearkening back to the fire that destroyed it in 1863, uh, we had a, a major fire that um, burned uh, our bike shop building at 802 Massachusetts Street to just a bare shell. There was no second floor. There was no roof. Uh, and then the building that we're sitting in, 804 Massachusetts, uh, they pumped in a million gallons of water to keep the fire from just marching all the way down the block and taking out the whole block. So it was uh, every fire truck in Lawrence and a couple from surrounding communities um, to to fight this thing. So 
back to your question about Lucy. Lucy is the name of the VW bug that's uh, downstairs. Mm-hmm. Um, after the fire, uh, we had a, well, prior to the fire, we had a Yakima roof rack uh, display down there, a point of purchase display that was supposed to look like a van. You know, it was kind of a, um, an interesting sort of uh, piece and the roof fell on it, crushed it. <laughs> and so we called up Yakima and we're like, Hey, uh, you know, we had this fire. Can, can we get another one of these things? Cause yeah. we want to sell racks. And they said, yeah, we'll send you one. It's, it's going to be $800 for that fixture. Huh. And in that moment, we we're like, man, we could just get a car for eight hundred dollars, and we got the space. So <laughs> uh, we looked around um, in the newspaper, and there was a guy selling a VW Bug, and uh, we went over to get it. And as we pulled up, it was this hideous pink color, and was, I was like, oh, that's ugly, terrible. Huh. And he says, no, 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 that's the one I'm restoring. Okay, Lucy is in the garage. Uh, and I'm pulling out the motor and the transmission, and that's going in the other bug, and. and she was beautiful. She was sure. just a great red, uh, 1965, uh, VW bug. And so, uh, we bought her for a couple hundred bucks and, um, she spent some time being kind of polished up, uh, by one of our staffers and, uh, Dave Milstein, the owner of the business at the time, he was adamant that we cut her in half and shove her up against the wall. And, <laughs> and a, we didn't really know how to do that. And B, uh, we liked her kind of whole. So they went to a KU basketball game one night as we were rebuilding in the years from 1997 to 98. And, uh, we, they were out of the store. So we went over to the place where the bug was and, uh, pushed it for three miles, uh, <laughs> down here. Um, oh, the man. kid sitting in this, there, there are no seats in it. So right. he was kind of squatting in it and steering it and we were pushing it uh-huh. and we pushed it right up on the sidewalk and in through the big double doors of the outdoor shop and oh my God. in between the two buildings and parked it and, uh, put some racks on it and filled it up with merchandise. And that was our new fixture. So, um, miracle miracles that yeah beautiful yeah it was only later that we found out uh so we had a customer come in and she was like that's my car <laughs> and we we're like what do you mean and she said yeah and she knew the backstory of it and she knew huh? she she was the one that said yeah her name is lucy and so uh we did a t-shirt um one of the great things about uh sunflower has been that um we always have creative people that are coming through here whether they're ku students that are engineering students or uh you know, industrial design or, or art or whatever. And so one of our uh, most prized relationships um, is that with my stepfather who uh, used to be a Hallmark cards artist for 37 years. Um, and so, you know, we call him up and say, Hey, we need a t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's like, cool. You want it? You want the bug busting out of the front of the shirt and you want to say Lucy? And we're like, yeah. And so <laughs> uh, we did teas for that. And then also uh, kids teas and all sorts of stuff. So that yeah. is super cool. Yeah. Great story. Okay, beginning to near the end. Um, mind you, it is eight thirty in the morning. Flew in last night. Nothing like getting a, a proper night's rest. But apparently, there's no better prep for Dirty Kansas than moving all of your belongings into a moving truck. As I move across the country, uh, beginning Monday. <laughs> Question: You've completed ten Dirty Kansas. Mm-hmm. You are approaching um, DKXL. So, by my math, that's you're approaching twenty five the completion of this you're approaching 2500 miles of effectively dirty kansas and you have completed over 2000 wide open question craziest story craziest thing you've ever seen craziest thing you've ever eaten craziest uh weather event i mean that's no shortage of of 
Miles pedaled. Yeah. What do you got? Um, that's the beauty of uh, gravel and uh, the beauty of Vicanza is that, um, you know, gravel is extremely variable. You can go to, um, you can go to Nebraska and they've got a different kind of gravel. You go to Iowa, it's a different kind of gravel. You come to Kansas and it's chunky and big and, and even in varying years, depending on whether the county has gone through and dumped a bunch of gravel or they've graded it or <laughs> whatever, you get a lot of variability in not only the course, but the, the conditions. So over those uh, 2000 miles of riding, we've had everything from blissful, uh, easy days to, you know, the year that Yuri won the infamous yeah. mud year where we walked for miles and miles and miles. And if anybody has seen those images there, it was a field day for the photographers that were out there because it was, um, it, it looked like trench warfare from, uh, world war one, which is, they're not, there's no parallel there. Obviously we're, uh, all, um, choosing to exercise and do yeah. whatever. So, but it was epic yeah. in that sense that, um, people were put at their limits. So, um, we wrote in 2016, we wrote it, it downpoured hours before the start. As mm -hmm. you recall, um, Yuri had won the previous year. I had just gotten to know Yuri a handful of months prior. And in the first few miles, as you watch derailers just go flying off and people really, really, really fighting your bike, like, yeah, I've raced through Northern Belgian classics. And I wrote up to Yuri. I said, I absolute hats off to you. You did this for 200 miles. Holy hell. Yeah. Anyway. Yep. So, um, I would, I would say that, um, my memories of those 2000 miles, um, there have been years where it's been hot and, um, we got you a know, toasty I, one this year. it'll be a toasty one this year. I mean, I've ridden into Con council Grove with tunnel vision and looked like death, you know, yeah. and drank every fluid I could find, including a beer and then remounted and went on. Um, I, if I had to really encapsulate it, I would say probably that the best memories that I've had uh, of the Kanza have been the people. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, so several years ago, well, three or four years ago, I should say, uh, as I was finishing my seventh or eighth Kanza, and it was clear to me that uh, a 17 or even 18 mile per hour average was no longer going to win the Kanza or even be competitive. I thought to myself, as I came down the finishing chute on Commercial Street in Emporia, which, as an aside, I think is like the best finish line in the world. You obviously have more experience with that than I have, but it is it's, it's uh, amazing, amazing to finish, yes. you know? Yeah. Uh, so I'm coming down the chute, and I thought, you know what? There should be an award for people that have finished more than one of these. Mm -hmm. And every year when you finish a Kanza, uh, they give you a pint glass, which is great. Um, I think I have probably three at this point because they get broken and whatever. <laughs> And so as I'm coming down the finishing shoot, I think, well, you know what, there should be an award for people that have done more than one of these. And if you do a, an event like Leadville, they have the thousand mile buckle at Leadville. Um, and so I talked with the organizers and I said, you know, we should do a thousand mile club uh, for people that have finished five of these. And so uh, Sunflower uh, sponsors that. And basically it's just a, it's a chalice. It's a 32 ounce uh, goblet with um, artwork from my stepdad that um, kind of, calls back to a lot of the towns that we've gone through. And this year, I think there are 42 or 43 oh people God. that are lining up for their fifth. Yeah. And as I look down that list of people, a lot of them are like family. 
to me. Yeah. I get choked up every year when I present those awards because it's, and it's interesting because the DKXL this year, a lot of people were like, well, hey, does that 350 miles count towards my 1,000-mile club? And <laughs> we said, no, it doesn't uh, because the 1,000-mile, it's, it's really more about finishing five DKs because sometimes you get an easy year mm-hmm. and sometimes you get a mud year. Sure. And sometimes you get uh, a year, like one of those years that I won, uh, I just missed the storm. I yeah. was out in front of it and other and behind me, people are laying in the ditch when straight line winds coming by yeah. and tornadic activity. So the variability of it um, really means that those people that have done it five times have experienced it all, mm-hmm. uh, but they've also been part of that tribe. And so um, that award, uh, as I say, it, it chokes me up every year because those are my people. Yeah. Yeah. I raced in, a lot of really cool places um, pedaled down some pretty epic finishes. Um, and what I tell a lot of folks, you know, we were hanging out with Josh Berry last night. He's here. A lot of new current and former pros are showing up for the first DK. And that final stretch in Emporia is A, incredible, the outpouring of support, and then B, the, the festival that goes on from that moment forward all through the night. You know, I've never been part of Iron Man, but there's this tremendous community that comes out. You are at the Emporia Downtown Fair, smack in the middle of downtown. You're hanging out with locals. You're hanging out with your, you know, 2,000 other comrades, drinking beer, eating delicious food, absolutely smoked. I mean, it is one of a kind. It's truly incredible. Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest single part of that is it. Um, Welcome. <laughs> Come on in. The, the outpouring of support. Uh, that Emporia has given the event. You know, early early on in the Kansas, uh, Jim and Joel, the folks that um, came up with this uh, event, wanted it to be small enough that they could each ride it in intervening or alternating years. And at some point, Jim moved away and Joel moved away. And then Christy uh, Moan, uh, who is pretty well-connected in Emporia, um, very well-connected. She, she's the queen of Emporia, basically, uh, said, hey, we should have this thing start and finish uh, downtown. Um, and honestly, I was done with the Kanza at that point. I, I had won it. I'd been second a couple more times. I didn't finish one year because I crashed. Um, and then the next year, I didn't start because I had a broken collarbone. And that was the year that Christy moved to downtown. And I thought, man, I, I'm not done with this. I got to yeah. come back. Yep. And so... The very coolest thing about it is that you can pull up in Emporia and some guy in bib overalls is going to walk up and say, are you doing the Kanza? Sure. You know, and they're looking at your bike on the back of the car and uh, they're into it, yeah. you know, and uh, I think they understand what a great economic driver it is for the town. Totally. Um, but they also get caught up, I think, in the challenge of it and seeing, you know, guys like you are going to finish in 11 hours or less, but the effort is the same as the person that finished at 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. Um, and you guys are fast, um, but the support is there for everybody from the first to the last. Truth. Um, and that's, I think, part of what, what makes it feel so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've done a tremendous job with an evolution, always keeping it. Well, you know, I missed <laughs> the first 10. Um, but bringing in the, the high school race this year and inviting NICA and doing the DKXL, so keeping it fresh, moving it to downtown, those are mm-hmm. super cool features. Okay, wrapping up, we got we got a big day ahead of us already. Three quick questions. You can answer them however you'd like. One, what is one place you would love to ride your bike? What is one place 
that is your favorite place to have ridden a bike and name one person that you would love to ride a bike with, with whom you'd like to ride a bike. If I want to go proper grammar, <laughs> uh, a place I'd like, I've ridden my bike a lot of different places. Yes, you have. We've ridden together in a handful of States. Yeah. Um, a bit. It's good. So, you know, bicycles have taken me to Europe and they've taken me to uh, all corners of the United States. Um, I think at this point, my dream ride as I'm getting up there in years, this is my last year in my forties. Um, I'm slowing down a little bit. So I think tour divide, you know, yep. a, a long two to three week sort of effort day in and day out, packing your shit up every yeah. day and, and pedaling over the horizon. Um, seems pretty cool to me. So I would, I would want to do that. Cool. Um, best place I've ever ridden. Um, I'm a Lawrence guy, but I have a soft spot in my heart for Emporia, for the oh, Flint Hills. Uh-huh. Um, I firmly believe that you could go out and you could have a 40-mile ride, and it could be awesome because the winds are perfect and your bike is working great. Or you could go out and have a 40-mile ride that just sucks because sure. nothing's going right. With an event like the Kanza, you're going to have both. You're going to have periods that are awesome, and you're going to have periods that suck. Uh-huh. And that riding that wave... And then getting to the finish line is transformative, I think. I think that's why those lengths of events change people. And so uh, I've been changed a lot by Emporia. So that um, has definitely been my favorite place. Awesome. Um, Who did I ride with? Um, It doesn't have to be a new person. (laughs) Uh, I would ride with my kids. I like, nice. I like riding with the boys. Yeah. Um, What's the over under Charlie riding? Uh, Charlie, my middle son, uh, broke his hand recently. Um, as of this uh, speaking, he is uh, adamant that he's not going to ride because he doesn't want to further injure his hand. Good. I am adamant that he is going to ride. <laughs> um, so that'll be an interesting. We're we're going to pack up our stuff here in a while, and we're going to make sure yeah. he has his kit and his helmet, and awesome. and we'll make a, a start line call, but. It's only 32 miles for the high school race, sure. so he can gut it out for that. Yeah. Um, but it's been fun riding with him uh, and all my boys because uh, they have grown into it, – it's interesting that with Charlie specifically, I um, it, it's gone from me waiting on him to now having to be the wily tactician who <laughs> – puts him in the wind a little sure. bit or, or fakes, uh, being tired and then out sprints him at a city limit. You know, he's, <laughs> he's uh, gotten strong enough that, uh, I've got to get crafty if yeah. I want to, cause I'm a competitive guy. I want to keep him in his place. No doubt. Uh, but pretty soon it's going to be him saying, what's up old man. Yeah. You're not, you're not catching up. So, and I've seen that over two years and he's in a transformative two years, two years ago. I think he was apprehensive to do it and he did pretty well. And last year he freaking smoked it. Yeah. Top 10. And, and, and he's 14. He'll be 15 at the end of June. Yeah. So at 13, he was the youngest kid ever to do the big lap. There at we go. Rebecca's private Idaho. Yep. Um, he got second in his age division. It took him nine and a half hours to do it last year. He, um, he did it three hours faster. Sure. Um, <laughs> and of course he's grown a foot, you know? Yeah. My biggest fear is that he is now taller than me and he'll start riding all my bikes um, and the good bikes will be not in my quiver anymore. But um, yeah, those guys, those guys are who I would ride with. I like it. Dan Hughes, King of Kanza, (laughs) 
it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for taking the time. Absolutely. Got a big day. Yes. Big weekend. Thank uh, you so much for having me on. Best it's of luck. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks.